Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 36. Last week, I continued through when Abimelech was ruling over Israel, a rule that lasted three years. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Of course, a few things happened during this few years period, and it eventually came to an end, which is where I'll begin this episode. And with that, let's get started. From the text. Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years, but God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the lords of Shechem, who then dealt treacherously with Abimelech, and were given a reason why, which leads up to what happens next. This treachery happened so that the violence done to Gideon's seventy sons might be avenged and their blood be laid on their brother Abimelech, who killed them, and on the lords of Shechem, who provided the wayward son's support. When the lords of Shechem turned on Abimelech, they did so by setting ambushes on the mountaintops, robbing everyone who passed by, with word of these troubles making it back to Abimelech. Eventually, a man named Gaul moved to Shechem, accompanied by his family. I'll get to Gaul later in this episode. At some point, this Gaul won over the trust of the lords of Shechem who put their confidence in him, so much so that they went out into the fields, gathered grapes from their vineyards, trod them, and celebrated, a party with wine as a libation. The lords also went into their temple of their god, ate and drank, and ridiculed Abimelech. And embedded in here is that Gaul probably worshipped the same polytheistic deity and not God. Gaul then spoke up, potentially taking proper advantage of the situation. He asked the lords of Shechem, Who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Did not the son of Gideon and Zebul, his officers, serve the men of Hammer, father of Shechem? Why then should we serve him? If only this people were under my command, then I would remove Abimelech, and I would say to him, Increase your army and come out. Essentially, Gaul was picking a fight. When Zebul, the ruler of Shechem, heard this, his anger was kindled, since he was seemingly allied with Abimelech, and also had his power threatened by Gaul. He sent messengers to Abimelech, who was at the city of Aruma at the time, likely living in exile, and also giving me a new person and place to cover. Back in the text, Zebul's messengers told Abimelech, Look, Gaul and his extended family have come to Shechem, and they are stirring up the city against you. Now, go by night, you and your army, and lie in wait in the fields. Then, early in the morning, as soon as the sun rises, get up and rush on the city, and when he and his army come out against you, you may deal with them as best as you can. Abimelech considered the plan good enough, leading his troops by night, who then laid in wait against Shechem. Also know that he divided the greater army into four companies. Presumably the next morning, when Gaul went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, Abimelech and the troops with him rose from their hiding spots. Gaul saw them, turned to Zebul, and said, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, 
The shadows on the mountains look like people to you? Gaul spoke up again, saying, Look, people are coming down from Tabar Urez, and one company is coming from the direction of Elam Mihonim. Zebul replied, Where is your boast now? Remember when you said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the troops you made light of? Go out now and fight them. At this point, I would have hoped Gaul recognized how Zebul had betrayed him, not that it would have changed what happened next. Gaul went out ahead of the lords of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him, with Gaul fleeing out before him. Many fell wounded, so many, the bodies were stacked up to the entrance of the city's gate. After this, Abimelech returned to Aruma. As for Zebul, he drove out Gaul and his family, so that they no longer lived at Shechem, though apparently Gaul survived. The next day, the people of an unnamed town went out into the fields. Based on the context, the implication is that the town was Shechem, though this was never directly recorded and could possibly be Aruma. Upon hearing of this, Abimelech took his troops, this time dividing them into three companies, and had them lay in wait in the fields. When he looked and saw people coming out of the city, he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech, with a single company, rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the other two companies rushed on all who were in the fields and killed them. Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people that were in it, but he wasn't done, raising the city, then sowing it with salt. When all the lords of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the temple of Elbereth. Abimelech was then told that all of the lords of the tower of Shechem had gathered together. He, along with his army, went up to Mount Zalmun. Abimelech took an axe, cut down a bundle of brushwood, and carried it on his shoulder. Then he said to the troops with him, What you have seen me do, do quickly, as I have done. So every one of his troops cut down a bundle of wood, and following Abimelech, put it against the tower. They then set the stronghold on fire, so that all of the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. Then Abimelech went to Thebes, and camped against it, and took the city. But there was a strong tower within the city, where all the men, women, and the lords of the city fled, shutting themselves inside. Obviously, Abimelech was likely planning on torching this tower too. Some of the people fled to the roof of the tower. Abimelech and his troops made their way to the tower's base, fought against it, and came near to the entrance of the tower to burn it. Before they could, though, a certain, yet unnamed woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull, but not immediately killing him. He quickly called to his young armor-bearer and said, Draw your sword and kill me, so that people will not say about me, a woman killed him. The armor-bearer did as requested. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was finally dead, they all went home. The text wraps up the chapter by saying that God repaid Abimelech for the crime he committed against his father 
in killing his 70 brothers. In addition, God also made the wickedness of the people of Shechem fall back on their heads, and as Jotham had outlined in his curse. And that's the chapter. The first person on my list to cover is Gaul. The ninth chapter of Judges, the one I'm currently embedded in, is the only place in the text where Gaul makes an appearance. He's believed to have lived in the 12th century BC. Other than this part of the narrative, in both the inside and outside historical record, not much is known about him. There is a small contingent of biblical scholars who think he could have been one of the mentioned lords of Shechem. Embedded in this is that some of these lords may have been living in exile in an attempt to escape Abimelech. This also infers that he could have perished when Abimelech burned the tower they were holed up in. And that's it. Next up is Zebul, who, as far as I can tell, only makes an appearance in Judges. What makes me unsure is that Zebul is spelled similar to Zebulun, and searching the biblical text also pulls up every time that name appears. This Zebul is one of Abimelech's officers, and the governor, perhaps commandant, of the city of Shechem. Zebul played an important role in the rebellion and defeat of Gaul, secretly sending messengers to Abimelech warning him of the situation. Because of this, he's described as being both a loyal friend of Abimelech and a shrewd military tactician. There's not much in the outside history, except that the 18th century German composer Handel, in his oratorio, Jephthah, has Zebul as Jephthah's brother, though this relationship cannot be found in the Old Testament text. And that's it for him. Next is Aruma which was the town that Gideon's wayward son, Abimelech, lived after he was apparently driven from Shechem. It's thought that the ruins of El Orma, which is around 6 miles, 10 kilometers southeast of Shechem, may be the same place. But to be clear, the exact place of Aruma is unknown. If it was this place, El Orma, then it's currently an archaeological site located in the West Bank region. This site includes the remains of a fortress dating to the Greek and Roman periods. This fortress exhibits the usual monumental style typical of Hasmonean and Herodian architecture of the period and region. It's atop a hill, about 2,800 feet, 843 meters above sea level, making it surprisingly elevated for the region. As an altitudinal reference, nearby Shechem is 700 feet, 200 meters lower. A 19th century Dutch cartographer identified El Orma as the biblical Aruma. A later French explorer made the same match. Despite these over-century-old potential identifications, the site has yet to be fully surveyed and excavated. What we do know is that it was the site of a fortress with many water facilities. There's what's known as a glacis on the east side of the wall line, at a lower level than the top of the mound, surrounding the mound on all sides. A glacis is a gently sloping bank, in particular one that slopes down from a fort and that exposes attackers to the defender's arrows and spears. Nearby was a hewn shaft, which also served as a quarry for building stones. 
At the southern end was a fortified structure built in two phases. The upper, potentially newer phase, is built of stones hewn with chisels, and the lower, potentially older part, is of coarser construction. Three open cisterns were uncovered on the southwestern slopes of the fortress, along with the water aqueduct, similar in construction to the Hasmonean and Herodian systems in Alexandrium and Hyarcanium. Pottery pieces from the early Roman period were found there, among other artifacts. Ceramics dating to the earlier Lake Greek and later Roman periods were uncovered there as well. Among the more interesting finds were nine coins depicting Demetrius II, dating to between 146 and 138 BC. The fortress's design is very similar to Hasmonean desert forts, probably indicating it was built by Hasmoneans to guard the nearby town of Acraba. It was also, probably, later controlled by Herod. Josephus mentioned Acraba as being one of the administrative cities in Roman Judea. After the First Jewish-Roman War, the area's prominence declined, with the fort gradually falling into disuse. Finally, in December 2021, Israeli media reported that the site was partially razed by the Palestinian Authority, which leveled much of the ancient ruins in order to build a large mosque and a solar power system. And that's what's known about the city of Aruma. The next place is Tabur Erez, but this is thought to be merely another name for Mount Gerizim. The last stop in today's episode is Elah Minomium, mentioned in Judges 9 as the direction that one of Abimelech's army's companies approached Shechem from. The context of this passage strongly implies it was close enough to Shechem to be visible. The suffix minomium translates to either plain, as in a flat piece of land, or soothsayers, and elon, well, that is the ancient Hebrew word for oak tree. In regard to the place in Judges 9, either one of these translations in this part of the text is just as likely as the other. Near Shechem, which itself was near elon minomium, was a tree known as the oak of the sorcerers, this tree is thought to be the place mentioned in Judges 9. The oak is likely in the text as a prominent landmark, giving the reader, or the ancient scribe and listener, a well-known place of reference. As for the relatively frequent use of oaks as landmarks in the text, this is likely because oaks are relatively rare in the region, which provides me with a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with the tower at Shechem. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.